Welcome to Off the Record, where we take a deep dive into the personal and professional lives of business leaders in the Twin Cities. Kathy Rabadou, market president and publisher of the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal, along with Dave Faust, president and CEO of Platinum Bank, team up to listen, learn, and laugh along with our guests as we go Off the Record. All right, so I am going to say our first episode of Off the Record. I am so excited to be here with Dave, my partner in crime here. And our first guest, Chris Lindahl, the man, I mean, do I do the arms out? Do I do this? Like when I see you is, is I mean, I feel yeah, like that's, that's appropriate. That's appropriate. I hope everyone that's listening is doing the same thing too. They can just visualize the arms out. Yeah. So Chris Lindahl here with us today. So we're super excited to have you. Thanks so much for being our first guest on the podcast. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor to be here. I'm really excited to, to share and learn and anything that I can provide to help people grow in their life. I think I, I, any, all the mistakes, I always think about all the mistakes that I've made along the way. And I, I love sharing those to make, if I can make anything easier for someone else, they don't have to go through the pain I did. It's <laughs> <laughs> better. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. So one of the things we've talked about with the podcast is we want to hear about the business side of things and you, but also about you, you as the person. So start us off and tell us a little bit about you, like growing up kind of your trajectory. And I, I'm, am I going to say the word wrong again, Dave? You're perfect. Okay. See, this is why I like him as my co-host. <laughs> so what's the trajectory like growing up? How did you get here? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think I that's... I put my arms out. Yes, I, I like it. I put my arms out. <laughs> I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of things like growing up that there were some clues about what things were going to be for me. And there's a lot of really, I think, pivotal moments of uh, throughout my life. I think when I was younger, elementary, like my mom and dad's, you know, separating, I think is one that played a critical role that you always hear in a lot of successful people. My dad was really heavy into drinking early on. And I think that played a role in who I am and the focus that I have. Uh, but I think like the the moment that some people are familiar with is I think when my dad got ran over by his girlfriend and murdered, I think that was like a pivotal moment for me. I was 16 years old. And really like at that point, I was like, my life, I got to take it in my own hands. No one's going to help me. I didn't have any resources. I didn't come from any money. I'm the only actually person in my family that has a college degree. So there's a, like the, all those things that I that I just had to take full ownership for for where I was headed. And I think that played, like as I grew, that really is always in the back of my mind of like, I'm super grateful for the experience that I had with my dad and the moments, and the memories I had. There's a lot of great things that happen. But I also made a decision like that my life's going to look a lot different than that. I'm going to do things a little bit off the path that he chose. The one that outside of that, that I think plays a big role is Vic, my daughter, Victoria, who's 13 now. And I remember when I got my license in May, 2009, and I found out a month later that we're having Victoria in September. So like, Hey, I'm going all commission. And now like, <laughs> Oh, by the way, like you're going to have a kid in the same year. And so I remember that moment of like, okay, like here are the things that happened in my life. And now I've made this decision that I'm going to be a different father than my dad was. And I think that the relationship that Victoria and I have is is just an, an amazing thing. And, and that's just been a real big priority in my life. So going back to those early days, what was like your first job? And did you have brothers and sisters? Tell me yeah, about that. I did. So I was being sensitive. You opened with that question like, hey, by the way, we're out of time. Yeah. So it's like, I got to be selective of, of what, you know, how much we can share on different parts. But so siblings, I have two brothers and a sister. I'm the oldest. My first job was at a bait store. So I love fishing. Uh, I got a sports background. So my first job was actually sorting night crawlers, like big they call them in the fishing world when you get night crawlers at the wholesale, when they deliver them, they call them flats. So they're these huge styrofoam containers full of dirt and, and night crawlers. And you pick them one by one to sort them out by the dozen or two and, dozen. And that was up. a job. That was a job. We <laughs> also did that same thing with the leeches, right? I know everyone listening is like, leeches, oh, like, so I'd have to sort those. And, and then I worked my way up shortly after that. And I, and I was in charge of the front register. And I thought that was like the greatest so once you, in the world. Once you get picked through the dirt, yes, you can get yes, all the night yes. crawlers out. You move to register. That's right. Then we know you can handle the cash. <laughs> That's right. And so if I'm, you piss the boss off, you're back on the leech patrol. Yeah. In my eyes, like the register, when I first started was more of handling the cash, like bringing people up to sort of a mundane, like just over and over and over. But I turned it into a sales job. Like I just can't help myself. So I started having contests with people inside of the in, inside the store that worked there. And said like, "Hey, what should I sell today?" 
And I remember distinctively that one of the workers there, the owner let him sort of brand his own ice fishing lure. And he ordered it, painted it and everything. And he had this box full of lures. And I said, I'm going to sell that entire box today. And we had a side bet. And every single person that came to the register bought those lures. And we sold the whole box. And he's like, I don't know how you just did that. And I said, well, you have to talk about, you, you can't talk about the lure. You have to talk about the catch. And so we were talking uh-huh. about like, hey, what is that photo going to look like after you take that lure to the lake and you catch that walleye or you catch that crappie? And so it was a, I was 16 years old and that was my first job. Oh, awesome. So tell me, going back to when your dad passed away, yeah. did you feel like you had to step into that father role? For yeah, I think, it, you know, so, so yeah, 100%. But I already felt like that, right? Because so our relationship was, we were very distant by that point, just the drinking and the separation. When my parents first got divorced, I actually, at that moment, thought I was going to go live with my dad. Like, that's how close we were. I was like, oh, I want to go live with my dad. And then as time went on like that, I I just got further and further away from him because of those things. And as I share this, like, I don't want to paint the picture like he was a really bad guy. He's actually a really amazing human being. But, you know, with with the drinking, it just wasn't something that I wanted to be associated with. And so I think as I as I got older and that, you know, that happened in fourth grade as I, I grew I just became like really independent. Like I'm like, I have to like be in charge of where I'm going. And sports played a massive role in, what sports in that basketball and football. And so I have a coach. I played that, basketball. Yeah. Were you a starter on the team? I was. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I only have one level. Like that's it. Like it's interesting because like there were some coaches and mentors that I had along the way that I wouldn't be where I am today without them. There were critical points in my life where I needed mentorship and those coaches just showed up in my life at the right time. And I, that's why I'm such a proponent for like, you know, hiring people that have a team sports background that understand how to win, understand how to lose, understand how to communicate and all the other things that come with that. And I, it's just something that when I decided in high school, I was like, I want to be a teacher. So my degrees are in teaching and I want to be a coach because of the people in my life that made that impact. And I ultimately didn't end up going into teaching and some would argue that that's actually what I do now in real estate, educating consumers and agents all over the country. So it's it's a similar passion, just not quite the same path. So you got your license, found out you're going to be a dad. Talk about that first sale. Yeah, the first sale. So this is a good- You remember it too, don't oh, you? Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. Every good salesperson yes. remembers their first yes. sale. I don't care. So this is a really good one. So- I sound like I'm dating myself now. Like I remember when I first got in and like, I hear all the old timers talk about the way it used to be. Now here I am. So when I first got into real estate, they had floor duty and you would sign up for the days that you were going to be in the office. And if any walk-in traffic or anyone called the office line, you would get to the opportunity to work with that customer. And today everything's online. It's a totally different, but so this individual shows up at our office and says, hey, I'm interested in some land, right? So the first transaction is land, which I know nothing about in 2009, <laughs> right? So you, you want to, like, you're just getting into real estate. The last thing you want to hear is the word lots and land <laughs> and like septics and wells and plat maps. And it's not what you want to hear. So, you know, I grabbed the map and I'm like, all right, let's head up there. And we get there and I don't know how to read it, right? So I don't know how to read the, the I'm, I'm looking at this thing. I got it upside down. He's in commercial construction, owns like a $100 million company, I find out as I'm going through this. Like just really advanced thinker when it comes to everything about land and lots and anything that you wanted that you want to talk about construction-wise. So we're there. He's like, well, I'm looking at the setbacks. And he's walking the other direction to one of the, the lot boundaries. And I've got the map backwards and I'm walking the other direction. And he's like, hey, hey, Chris, actually, it's over here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so I'm spinning this thing around the other way. And I'm looking at this map and... It was just such a disaster that I that he knew that I knew nothing. I mean, it was so obvious that there was no faking anything. And so he said, yeah, I'll buy it. And I didn't even know what the next steps were. Like I said, oh, awesome. Like, all right. He's like, well, here's a check. So I left. I got a check from him. I remember it was $49,000 was a lot back in 2009. So I head back to the office. I've got a check. I've got no purchase agreement, no contracts, nothing in writing. <laughs> but you got and I'm, cash. And I'm the cash. You got the check. <laughs> I'm like, hey, good news. I sold my first thing. He's like, well, where's the paperwork? And I'm like, well, I don't actually know how to put together a lot purchase agreement. He's like, okay, let me walk you through that. So, so then I get everything ready to go. And then I've got to call the guy back and go, um, yeah, the check doesn't actually buy the lot. Like you have to come and get into the paperwork. And that was my first sale. Oh my God. What a great story. <laughs> so first of all, that is a great story. And obviously you could probably write a lot deal today, like in yeah, sleep, right? For sure. Yeah. From there, where do we go? So you're there, you get your first deal. Yeah. 
and then. So there's a, yeah, it's good. It's actually a really good question. So it's 2009, right? It's the arguably the bottom of the economy, right. the industry. I mean, it was actually a really sad time. I mean, most of the people are, that I was meeting with like lost their job, divorce, too much credit, bankruptcy. I mean, everything you can think of like on the edge of losing their house, behind on payments. And so it became really obvious to me early on that most of the transactions that I was coming in contact with were short sales or foreclosures. And the umbrella of that is bank mediated sales. Like there's a bank involved that has to make the decision to sell the home. So I attended, I signed up for a short sale seminar with another real estate agent that was putting on this class to teach other real estate agents how to effectively negotiate short sales with banks. And so when I went there, I remember like sitting there and just, I'm like, I can actually do this better than he can. And I was so new to real estate. I have no idea why I thought that because I wasn't qualified to think that way. But I decided when I left there that I was just going to become the number one short sale agent in the state. Like, and that was my commitment. And that was the, that was probably third quarter of 2009. And by the end of 2010, I was the number one short sale agent in the whole state. And that was really the majority of the market. It really was like there weren't a lot of traditional sales. And if there were, they were taking a massive haircut to sell. I mean, they were liquidating 401ks. I mean, it was just big checks. You'd see like relocation and obviously life-changing events that happen. But I, I became a short sale agent. And I think that I started to really live that passion of teaching and giving back and being there for people in a time where they were in a really challenging environment. Well, yeah, because like a short, it's not like people are like, hey, I have to, you know, I have to do a short sale on my house. It's not like- I got to pay to sell something. Right. That's right. never fun. Right. Because no. typically, no. you know, people are excited. They're buying a home. So you're, you were dealing with a different kind of buyer. Yeah. Thing, and, the, right? and the seller, the seller. yeah, the, the seller in a short sale situation, the seller still does sign the actual listing paperwork, but everything is subject to the bank saying yes to, to the short amount, the amount that they're short. And so step number one of meeting with the homeowners and coming up with a plan, aside from the emotion that the homeowners state that they're in, is actually the easy part. The hard part is negotiating with a bank that's going to lose $100,000, $200,000, and you're asking them to write off that entire amount. Back then, because the banks were so inundated, that was like an eight-month process. And so this is interesting. When I got in in 2009, that was just, that was the end of like the boom, right? 06, 07, mm-hmm. things were nuts. It kind of reminds me a little bit about where we are today. Not the same, the market's not going to do the same thing, but there are similarities. And every agent that had just done super well in their career in 2009 said, I'm not doing short sales. I'm not doing foreclosures. They were too good for that because they remembered the heydays and they were operating in the past on memories. So everyone said no until they were out of business. And you see a lot of those same things today where everyone wants to go back to what 2021 was when things were 20 offers and they were crazy. And now things are getting more challenging. Everyone wants to go back to that market and no one's ever satisfied or content in the market that they're in, right? And I've always seen that about everyone and there's always gonna be challenges, but going into those appointments was step number one. And that was the the draining emotional part. But working with the banks was the hard part. And I always share this with people that are thinking about scaling their business, whatever industry that they're in. Back then, the average sale price was just slightly over $100,000, right? And so after you look at real estate commissions, you're with a brokerage. So there's some compensation that they take for taking on the risk and all those things. My average commission check was under $1,000. So I think it was like $700. So it took me eight months to do that transaction. Every week, calling the bank, faxing and paperwork that they lost. I mean, they were so overloaded that if you faxed in the documents that you faxed in were massive, right? Bank statements, pay stubs, hardship letters, everything was faxes. And it was so that they had a record of it. And it was also right before the internet sort of got to that point where they started to take that, those documents securely. Mm -hmm. And I spent sometimes, I remember some of them were like 12 to 16 months of on the phone every week. And at the end of the day, if anyone would have looked at that, they would have said, there's no way that I will ever do that because that's not worth the amount of money that you're making. And it wasn't, but I knew that I was playing a long-term relationship building was put at the forefront of how I was going to grow. That really, when you think about those early days, that's the foundation of actually how we got to where we were. 
is that every single person that I met with, I was never focused on like, hey, I'm only making $700. I was more focused on, I have to help them get out of a bad situation. And if I do this well, I know that they'll come back and they'll tell their friends and family down the road. From there, so you're like 2009, by 2010, you're like the guy. You're the guy for short sales, right? They're like, here's your guy. So how do you, because that's also, you know, to start your career that way isn't really maybe like, oh yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this for the next however many years. So at what point is it like, okay, you're at a firm and how do you get to, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to do this kind of, when did Mm -hmm. that piece So what you mentioned right there that I definitely want to share with everyone is like, when I started was the greatest gift. And then in the moment, I didn't know any better. If I, like, I think about now, like if I would have known what that, if someone would have told me that all those were the, that that was the level of work that I needed to to make and all those things, I would, I probably would have said no, right? Most people naturally would say, wait, it's going to take 12 months and I have to do this and I don't know anything about it. I just didn't know anything. Like, so I was already like half in and I didn't know anything about the industry. So I just was already committed. But I think that is a critical point of like, sometimes when you get in, when it's really challenging, like you appreciate when the market gets easier or better or different. And I think that's a critical part of it. And I think that is for me, that is the part that I've always remembered is I never forgot where I came from. And I know what, the work that we do, how it matters and how it impacts families. I've seen that firsthand. I've been in those shoes and have walked alongside that. And I think as you look at the growth of our company from the early days of me as an individual agent to a team to independent broker, one of the big reasons that we ended up where we are today and where we're going is because I started from the beginning and I wore every hat along the way. Mm. And a lot of companies bring in a CEO that is really good at operations, logistics, process, leadership, people, all kinds of things, but they don't have the experience and they can't relate to what it was like grinding throughout the entire journey. And so a lot of the things that we've built along the way are to make life easier for real estate agents. So convenience-based brokerage, make life easier for the agents, make life easier for the customers, right? Give people their time back, like take the stress away. We've engineered all this stuff based on my journey. And so if you look at 2010 and then you start to progress by 2013, I sold 147 homes with one assistant. And so that's a massive number of homes to sell with one assistant. And then 2014, I sold 175. So it's one every two days. And that was, you know, in the way that they rank things, I mean, that was number one in the state for individual agent. And I had one assistant in 2000, the end of 2012 and 13, I started to see that the short sales started slowing down a bit and the market started started slightly correcting. I knew that I had to pivot out of being the bank-mediated short sale specialist because people were now thinking about selling their house traditionally and some of the homeowners were saying, well, you only do short sales, right? That's your niche. And so I had to make this adjustment in 13 and I started sort of positioning myself more as like, I can help you no matter what it is that you need to do in real estate. And then in 2014, after I sold 175 homes, that was like the max. Like I was totally tapped out, out of time, out of- It's a lot of faxing. Yeah, I just couldn't do any more, right? I know it is. I couldn't, I was like, I'm at a point where I need to grow, I need help. So in January 15, I started the Chris Lindahl team at a international brokerage. And that's when I first- started understanding like who to hire, when to hire, scaling, marketing, like all these things that I didn't have any training on, more things went wrong than they went right in that journey. So Chris, when you, when you came to that realization that yeah. you couldn't keep doing what you were doing, you're burning out, what, how did you come to that conclusion? Was there some magic moment? Did someone hit you over the head? Oh, you have an epiphany. What brought you to that decision? Yeah. So I think there were a slightly, a bunch of different things that all happened at once. I mean, you end up at a point where you're like looking in the mirror, you're like, I can't actually do anymore. There's no way that I don't have any more time. Right now, all of a sudden, all those people that I invested in and and really helped them out of a bad situation, now they're ready to buy again, right? So they're several years, their credit's back, their income's back, and they're all coming back to me. So you think about how that domino effect of all of those, those people, plus all the other things that we were doing from a marketing standpoint, it was all together. And then also just the strategic decision, like my daughter being, at that time, she was five years old my top priority and commitment was being there for her. So I said, I'm just, I don't have the desire to 
to try to prove that I can do 250 transactions by myself or 350. I thought in the early days, like, look at me, like I'm this superstar. I'm winning all these awards. I'm speaking on all these stages. I've done more than anyone else. Like I thought that that was a major accomplishment. But then as I started, as, as time went on, I started to realize like that was really stupid. Like I should have been growing and scaling and helping other people grow their business way earlier on than trying to do it all on my own. So in January, 2015 then, because some people will just say, hey, you know what? I sold 175 homes last year. Maybe I sell 200. Maybe I say the same. I'm going to earn a good living. I have a daughter. What was it when you're like, okay, I'm going out on... Like it's January, 2015. It's freezing, probably yeah. Minnesota, right? <laughs> I mean, and you're just sitting there and you're just like, I'm going to go on my own. I think that the big driver for me was that I knew that I wasn't giving what I had and what I knew and what I learned. I knew that I was making such a small impact in the world based on what I had learned in that five-year period that I had to figure out a way to make a bigger impact in the lives of others. Like that's always been my driver. That's why I wanted to be a teacher. That's why I want to be a coach. Like all the things that I did as I was growing up were always driven by giving back and inv investing in others. And I realized that moment, 175 families a year is an amazing accomplishment and I am making a positive impact. But what if I could bring in other agents that each do 175 transactions, the multiplier of what I've learned and the real journey that I've been on is saving homeowners and home buyers from the traditional real estate agent process. People don't know how inefficient of a process that they're getting with a real estate agent because the majority of people go use a friend or a family member that they know and they don't interview anyone else. They don't know what questions they ask because they do it every once, every 10 or 15 years. Mm. And so, so we're just super focused on investing and really creating this process that no one's ever had before in this experience. Okay, so you start Chris Lindahl Real Estate, mm -hmm. named after you. I started Chris Lindahl Real Estate May 2018. <laughs> I started the Chris Lindahl team in January 15. Okay, so Chris Lindahl team. Yep. And then that was what? You, your assistant, I would assume yeah. the assistant yeah. made it through. Yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> tough. Like, I mean, it was it was taxing. I mean, to, to, yeah, and so we hired, I mean, and, and I always believe in people, right? And I've realized that, you know, that can be a great trait and sometimes that, that cannot get me in the right places. And so I would just would meet people and I'm like, I believe in you, like, let's go. Like no <laughs> assessments, no plan, no interviews, no nothing. Like, I know you can do this. I believe in you. Like if I can come from, Ridley, Minnesota, and overcome the things I've had to in my life, I think you can too. And then what I realized is like, I wanted things more for people than they wanted for themselves. Mm -hmm. And they it just, everyone would let me down. So that like, was your recruiting strategy. Yeah. It was, my recruiting strategy was just like, anyone <laughs> I meet, I'm like, I know you can do this. I believe in you. But I realized real quickly that I was believing in everyone else more than they were believing in themselves. So you hired every one of the people that are on your team today, correct? Yes. And so what do you look for when you look at talent and kind of what motivates them? Yeah. So the way that we think about things is very different than a traditional real estate brokerage would. So one critical difference is that 90% of the business that comes into KLRE Day, Crystal Real Estate, is generated by Crystal Real Estate. That is very different. I would say in the traditional brokerage, that's probably flipped. 90% of the business in a traditional brokerage comes from the agent in the brokerage. Okay. Right. So because of all of our marketing and our branding and the way we've created the streamlined process, Everything is coming to us. So what we are looking for is very different. In a traditional real estate brokerage, they're looking for a hunter that's door knocking, cold calling, reaching out to friends and family, prospecting, sending out postcards, mailers, open houses, you name it. In our world, we're looking for people that can create and really take care of a customer at a high level. We already have the customers. We have so much demand to work with our brand that that is not an issue for us. We need to make sure that we deliver on the promise that we put out there and we create a world-class experience for the consumer. So we're looking for things that are slightly different, like higher detail orientation is important to us. But in a traditional brokerage, you probably don't want people that have too much detail that they're overthinking everything that they don't actually go out and prospect or do anything, mm -hmm. right? So we don't need to sell the same way that a traditional broker does. Everyone that's reaching out to us, whether it's phone, text, call, email, website, social, whatever it is, they're already sold on working with us. They know people that have worked with us. They watched what we're doing. They know we're doing something different. They, it's a very different type of, everything's coming inbound to us. We're not outbound prospecting anyone. You brought this up because I think we talk about the marketing and the branding, mm -hmm. right? We know I started with like the arms. Yeah. I mean, that's your thing. When <laughs> I driving to Brainerd, no matter where I'm going, there is a billboard. And sometimes in some spots, I'm like, 
oh my God, there's, there's a freaking billboard out here. Right. And now, you know, now there's a dance doing the Linda. All my kids know it. I've told you that (laughs) my kids know the dance. So, but I think back when, and now it's, it's more well-known, but is it when, like, when did that, the marketing and branding, like what made you one lead with that? Like, when did that, how early on and when did it actually start? Because from my memory, it's when I hate even bringing this game up, but when the Eagles played the Vikings, yeah. Yeah. right? And you had a billboard like outside the state. I remember hearing about, I'm like, who who the hell is this guy, right? <laughs> like, so tell us about that. I, I want to hear about that. Like, what made you decide to put that billboard there, yeah. one? And then what made you decide to lead with kind of the marketing branding? Because you just said that's really how everything is developed. Yeah, so. of course. That, I love that story. So, so we put that billboard on I-95 and Broad Street. I still remember the cross streets of exactly where it was outside the stadium. And there's so many different things that actually made that go viral that I'll try to share really quickly. But the first one was, and there was some luck associated with it. And I think as you grow and in, 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 wherever you're at in, in business, you do get lucky often, right? And so the more that you're there, the more likelihood that you're going to get lucky. When you're not present, it's hard to get lucky. And so the game before that was the Minneapolis Miracle where they where Diggs scored that touchdown when it was just crazy. I was at the game and I posted this crazy thing on social media that was not thought through that said, hey, if the Vikings win this game, I'm going to turn all the billboards purple. And so by halftime, I'm like, <laughs> I text our graphic designer. I said, hey, we should probably like start mocking up a couple of purple billboards just in case. And they end up winning that way. So the part of the story that most people don't remember, they did at the time, was all the local billboards were purple first. Mm-hmm. So we changed all the billboards locally to purple and they get anything that you put purple. I mean, everyone thought we were going to win the Super Bowl that year. It was like anything yeah. purple was crazy, right? Everyone was going wild. We still so, have that dream. Yes, I know. Still I know. We're still holding dream. on to that. Like we're still holding on to that. And so, so then I got this crazy idea on Thursday afternoon. What if we put a billboard up in Philadelphia? So there's a lot of logistics to Thursday afternoon with a game that's on the weekend of getting a vinyl printed. But the bigger challenge, and this is what I didn't actually foresee when I came up with the idea, was the a lot of the billboard companies reserve the right to reject creative. And so we signed a contract with a billboard company outside the stadium and submitted the creative, which the creative is the artwork that's going to go on the vinyl billboard. They said, no, you can't put that up. So that we're now into Thursday mo- or Friday morning, and the well, first company. What was that concept they rejected? The purple and gold. The so colors. Just, just the fact that it was a yeah. Biking. They said oh, wow. they said our fans, the Philly fans. Oh yeah, right. They said they'll tear the whole plate thing down. <laughs> like that. They, that was good business. Yeah, yeah. 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 So they <laughs> said they'll tear the whole thing down, and and so then we went to the next company. We signed the contract, submit the artwork. Nope, you're out. So they would, and then everyone's tapped out except for me. Everyone says we're done. This isn't happening. I said, no, it's not over yet. We're still calling. So I called by myself. I started reaching out to every single company that I could find. And I finally found a company that said, we're willing to roll the dice on this. And I said, all right, I'll figure out the rest. And, and it was a mad dash scramble to figure it all out. And we got the billboard up and there's like a, it ended up, there's a lot of things that happened there. Obviously, all the local media picked it up. And then all, the national media started picking mm-hmm. it up. It just took a life of its own really fast. It just kind of started going crazy. I shared it on social media. Everyone locally shared it on Twitter. It was a place where a lot of a lot of the news uh, media sh- shared it. But then what took it to the next level is when I flew there. And then I posted on social media, like, I'm going to the game. <laughs> And everyone is commenting like, you are absolutely insane. They're going to kill you. Like, this is like, have you not read about, I mean, there's all kinds of, have you not read about Philly fans throwing batteries at Santa Claus? Like all these stories, like people are like genuinely concerned about my life. Like they're commenting like, this is the craziest thing that you could ever possibly do. And, and so it's funny is I'm on the plane, I'm ordering an Uber and I get an Uber. And the first question I asked the Uber driver is like, are you a Philadelphia Eagles fan? And so the first two said, yes. So I said, all right, cancel, pay the $15 cancellation fee. And then I get this third one. And he's like, no, not really. I'm not from here. Perfect. You're hired. (laughs) So I jump in the Uber and we go down I-95 and we park the car on the exit of Broad Street with the flashers on. And I'm standing on the side of the road with the exit to the stadium. All the cars are lined up with Philly fans, windows down, drinks are flying everywhere. And this driver is taking pictures of me standing on the highway in purple like standing underneath my billboard with my arms out and people are screaming and yelling. And I posted that and people were like, this guy has really gone nuts now. <laughs> and then the last part to it is I ended up on the field before the game. And this was totally random luck, but the cameras just randomly pick me up. It was a primetime game 
And so the cameras are on me. I'm standing on the field and there's like all these Philadelphia fans in the background. And it was just the whole story of how it all worked was, was crazy. But the, and then the second part to your question is like the, you know, the sort of the arms out, the decision to go that route. And I think a, a really big part of where that came from is obviously how I grew up, like an arms out approach to having people in. That was always a critical piece, the generosity of making an impact in the lives of others but then also doing something very different, right? When I first started the billboards, I was like, oh, I've got the greatest marketing message. And it was, you know, I sell a home every nine hours. And that was like 10, that was forever ago. And what I did is I took 10 different pictures of me. This is before the arms out. And each one of them was in a different outfit. So I was lined up, there was nine of me. And it says like, I sell a home every nine hours. No one remembers that billboard because it sucked. And so then after that, I'm like, what am I even doing? That's not who I am. And that's what sort of led to the, to the thought process and of really creating something different. And that's how it started. And I was willing to go like, I don't need a suit coat. Like, I'm just going to wear a dress shirt. I don't need a tie. People are looking for something different in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm just going to put my arms out and do this. People think that the pose is actually what, how this happened, but it's the execution of all the other marketing and branding things that we did that actually made it happen. Right? So if you do arms out and no one sees it, it doesn't matter. Right. Like you still have to execute and get visibility. So let's go back to your daughter. So yeah. does your daughter take a lot of grief in school about kind of you and your, your exposure and the, the way you go about your, your business? She, I would say, I don't think she takes much criticism, right? So I don't think she takes much criticism, but obviously everyone brings up me to her and she's really used to it. And actually the other day, it's, uh, someone posted a something on TikTok of passing billboards and sort of slightly making fun of me. And so my, my daughter reposted it. So she's, I, I think she's beyond the point of like the shy, like she's sort of embraced it and, and, and it's fun. And I, there was a story I just actually shared on my social media today, Minnesota Wild game that I was at last week. And there was this agent that was at a table, a real estate agent, I didn't know, was at a table next to me. And I was kind of overhearing the conversation. And she started, like, I remember she set her phone, which you can't see as you're listening, but she set her phone on the table and she's taking pictures of me but pretending to have a conversation with like taking pictures, like pretending to be, you know, talking to someone else. And I'm like looking right at her. I'm like, I know you're taking pictures of me. So what I did is I just kept stepping out of the way because she wasn't looking at me, but she was taking the photos. So I kept moving out of the way, just totally messing with her. Then she'd set her phone down and pretend that she wasn't looking at it. Then she'd look at it. And she realized like, how did I miss the photos of him? So then she'd try it again and I'd step out of the way again and I'd move out of the way. And then like the third time, like I give like this big smile that I know that when she looks at, like I got my thumbs up and I'm looking right at the camera. And if she looks at her camera, I know she's like, he knows that I, that I'm trying to do this. And yeah. she never says anything to me. And so then the second intermission, all of a sudden I look up and she's across the room and she's taking more pictures of me. <laughs> and so the reason I bring the story up is that Victoria's friend is grabbing food in the club level and comes back and says, I just heard this lady over there talking about you. And I was like, oh yeah, what did she say? Well, her other friend was like, can you text me those photos of Chris Lindahl? Like, it's just funny how like, so Victoria and her two friends, right? My daughter right there. So that's the type of like, and then we're in the, you know, then we're in the seats and and Victoria like, now she's like, do you see that those four people over there are all taking pictures of you right now? Like, so she's like more observant of it. Yeah. And I didn't even tell them that that first part had even happened until the, they overheard the lady say like, Hey, will you send those photos of Chris? It's like, so it's things like that, which are, which are funny. So I posted and people loved it this morning. So. So you talked early on in the conversation about some of the mistakes you made. Obviously, you did a lot of things, right? Tell us about some of those things that didn't go so great. Yeah, I think the one I shared earlier is a a really critical one, and that's believing more in people than they believe in themselves. And I think really understanding that at a high level is important. Like, what's going to make you wake up in the morning? You know, do you need an alarm? Are you passionate about this? Why are you here in this world? Connecting to something personally, I think, is also really critical. I've just seen that most people that are on this journey of just all professional rarely make it. The ones that have something bigger that some, and it doesn't have to be some audacious why, but something that you wake up in the morning, like, this is why I'm living. This is my purpose, I think is a a critical part. And once we started understanding that it really changed because now our conversations on the front end are like, why are you here? Like, what is the purpose of your life? And that's more of the conversation than like, how many houses do you want to sell? Like, what, like how much money do you want to make? All of those things are not a priority in, in our world. It's like, what are you going to do here with the short amount of time that you have? And I think early on, we didn't have those conversations. I think also what I saw too, is that there were some things that we did early on that we weren't real consistent with. And I take full responsibility of that just being a crazy visionary, like, oh, let's try this. Oh, it didn't work for 20 days. Like, let's go over here. Right. And all pretty soon, everyone, yeah, pretty soon everyone in the company's got whiplash, 
right? And every day I come in, they're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen today? We can't follow through and nothing gets finished. We get half finished and then they don't like it. Then we flip over here. And so we're really cautious about what we execute on now. And, and, and I think that's a big one. I think especially like sitting in the vision seat, it takes a lot of accountability for me to not roll out things that I know will work because I know it'll be damaging to the the people in my company. It'll get them distracted. So I have to sit and slow down. It feels like at times we're going at a snail's pace, right? From For the way that I think, but I also know that it's healthier to give people the space to be able to complete things rather than just keep throwing more and more on and they become the plate spinner of 50 different things that nothing gets done. Is it hard for you to let go of stuff and delegate? It's not. No, it was early on. And it was early on. And it's, like it's it's early on, like six months ago? Good clarifying question. Early on, like when I was go, transitioning for 2014 mm -hmm. to starting the team, the transition of Chris isn't going to show up at the home, one of his top agents is was a very hard transition. Actually, most people- Hard for you or hard for the client? Client. The yeah. client, right? Expectations weren't set properly. A lot of people didn't quite understand our business model. Like, why is someone else showing up and not Chris? So the educational process was really light at that time uh, because we we're so early. But now people understand that, hey, we want Chris in the vision seat of creating the marketing, the strategy to get the most exposure for our house. We don't necessarily need him in our house, like looking at certain things. There's actually people in our company that are far better than I am. And I think that's a, that's to me, that is a really big component of this entire thing is understanding where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. I saw, I've just seen too many leaders that are so delusional about thinking they're good at everything. And they have this control freak mentality that they want to be responsible for everything, but they're doing everything, you know, 50%. And I just realized like the moment that I started delegating things that I realized I was just not great at to someone else it allowed me to focus more attention on the things that I was good at. And so a lot of what you see today from a marketing and branding standpoint is that I've taught myself, taught myself everything that we've done from a marketing standpoint. And that's what I'm really good at. Like that, like understanding how to get more exposure for our customers, how to generate more activity. Those are the things that I'm really, that I'm really good at now. It's taken me a long time to learn, but if I was doing all the things that I was only average at, it would take away from the things that I'm great at. We've talked about that just as a leader, no matter what you're doing, I think a lot of times there's this mentality that, oh, you're the leader. You should know how to do everything or where everything is, or you should be the best at everything. And it's like, well, no, really, that's not the case. You know, you build up your team, which I've met some of your team members. They're fantastic. Yeah, amazing. And but I mean, that takes time, right? Like you said, it takes time. And sometimes it's hard because part of it is letting go. Part of it is letting things fail or watching things fail. And knowing at the end of the day, like I always tell everybody, I'm like, guys, I, you know, this is about everybody here. Everybody's just as important. Just think of me as the first head on the chopping block. Right. That's how you yeah. just got to think about it, right? Another thing that I've found that really gets in the way of, of that growth, scaling, delegating, all those different responsibilities and, and actions that happen is the, is ego. And people listening, this is what's funny, is that people that don't actually personally know me assume because I'm on TV, radio, digital, billboards, everything that we do and the brand that we've created, people assume that there's this massive ego, like I'm like arrogant, completely out of touch with the world and people and treat everyone terrible. And like, there's a stereotype of people that don't know me that that think that. But what's what's it is but why like why do you think that they why do you think they think that because the natural assumption for most people is that when someone becomes very visible there must be something either that they cheated there must be something that they did wrong they must be a bad person this is why most people when you see when they rise in any sort of success in the world there's a majority of the a, a percentage of the population, but sometimes the majority actually want to see that person fail, mm -hmm. right? You see the comments on social media, you know, wherever else you want to look, you can find whatever you want. Majority of people are like, how, like, this is going to crash. This doesn't feel right. It's over. They're going to go away. And you see all those things happen. That's why when I said ego, people are like, why would Chris Lindahl be talking about ego? That's what someone that's never met me would think. Mm -hmm. Like the, the biggest ego in the world, because he put his, face and his arms out. He has the gigantic ego, but I've seen that that ego piece, if you can't get that under control, you actually can't scale. Right. And that's the piece that gets in the way because people think, Oh, I'm so much better than this person. that's, that's doing it. I'm, and I'm like, I'm most of the people in my company are smarter than me that, that are way more qualified than I am. 
Like I'm super clear that there's a lot of stuff that I'm not great at, that they're way better than I am. But it takes a long time to get to that point where you can realize like, okay, maybe I'm not that good at this, right? And it reminds me back to days what you asked earlier about sports, right? When you go into, a, you know, when you go into, I mean, I played football, basketball, so use football as a reference. If I'm the quarterback and I'm the only person on my team on the field and there's 10 people that are short that aren't there and I'm playing against 11 people, I'll lose every time, right? right? It's, it's the same thing that I realized like, Hey, if, if I, if I think I'm the greatest thing in the world and I'm wearing every single hat, I'm going to lose for my customers. I'm going to lose for our agents. Like nothing's going to go well. And it's getting that ego piece is what gets in the way of every, the growth of every single company that I've ever met. And I can tell you in about two seconds now with the experience that I have of what a company is going to do based on the leaders that I meet. So how did you learn that lesson? It's not forgetting where you came from, right? And so I mentioned it earlier, coming from a, a small town, Fridley, going to Mankato. For, like, I came from nothing, and I always remember that. And if you talk to any of my friends that I grew up with, and I don't want to be the one to put words in their mouth, but if you ask them and say, hey, he's the exact same person that we spent time with in high school. I actually, when I got here today, I ran into one of my best friend's sisters at the bottom of the elevator and talked to her for five minutes. So I was two minutes late. So I'm sorry, but I, I ran into her. I haven't seen her. I haven't seen her in 10 years. Right. And so we were just like caught up like old times, but the same thing. If you were to ask her, if she came up here and said, Hey, how is Chris today versus how is Chris then? It's the exact same thing. But what happens is, is the people that don't know you start to run away with a story and a narrative of who you are, what is it you do. I see stories sometimes that people say that I was at or did or a part of, and I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. It becomes like the telephone game of, well, I think he was at the wild game. And then it became, he was doing this and saying this, and he was throwing drinks here. And like, it's just, everyone has a story, right? And it's amazing how life works that way. So knowing that, knowing yeah. that they're like, look at this guy, he's on billboards, arms out, ego. And it's not that. At what point do you say, okay, the noise is going to be there no matter what I do. Yeah. And so at what point do you decide, I know what we're doing. I'm the visionary. We're going to keep going. Do you change? I mean, for a little while, you had different faces on the billboards. I remember that. See, I, I, yeah. I pay attention. At what point do you say, this is the strategy we've had. It's working. It's, I mean, people are people talk about you, right? Yeah, of course. So obviously it works. Mm -hmm. But when that narrative is out there and those things are out there, tell us, what do you do with that? Well, it's a small percentage of people for one, right? So so that is not the majority, right? The, I mean, I've to this day, and now someone's going to listen to this and maybe they'll change. But to this day, <laughs> every single person that I've met has had positive things to say about what we're doing. I've never had one person say anything negative. I've never, like all the stuff that that happens on all the social media, I've never met anyone like that. I also worry about the day that those people are gone because that means that we're no longer making an impact. I really love when people have something to say because I get to learn from it. What are people saying? Why are they saying that? Like I love feedback, whatever it is, because it helps me grow. It helps our company grow and be better for everyone that we serve. And so I just worry that if someday that all goes away, that means that we're no longer making an impact and we're no longer noticeable. And so I turned it into a positive. In the early days, I thought, when you look at the people when they're saying something that's not nice about you, the natural reaction is like, you wanna fight, you wanna argue, you wanna like defend yourself. But then I realized really quickly, like that when someone says that, that's more about them than it is about me. And I turn it into a positive because I get to learn from every single person that says something. And so now I welcome all of those conversations because it just, it creates more information for us to be better. So as you create this new model and you go out and try to scale it with a different approach, was there a point where you said, hey, this is working? I know you're an eternal optimist, right? I can see it. You're going to, you're going to will yourself <laughs> to win. If but he was there to ever... himself, <laughs> he will do it. Yeah. Was there ever a moment you said, this is going to work. We got something. Yeah, I knew it was going to work before we started it. And the only reason I say that, and I think this is a critical difference on how you start a company. When I started the Chris Lindahl team in January of 15, I was six years in to building a foundation of people that I was spending eight, 12 months with, helping them overcome the most challenging time of their life. When you have thousands of people that you've invested face-to-face, -face, that blood, sweat, and tears of like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you out of this situation, you have people that are going to support your business forever. The challenge is, is that a lot of people create businesses today and they're looking for the easy button. Like, let me enter the credit card on Google or social media or buy these leads or buy those leads. And now we're in business and they don't do the work 
and that ground level of being in the trenches for that long, there's no way it can't work when you're willing to give everything you've got to make an impact in someone's life. And so when you get to that point where I now said I'm in January of 15 and you have thousands of people that you've successfully helped and they all have friends, family, coworkers, and people that they know that they're referring you to, all of a sudden it becomes really big before we even start. And so people think all the time, like, you know, billboards, radio, TV, all the things that everyone's seen and heard, they think that that is what actually scaled the company. What they don't understand is the slugging through the mud and the grinding every single day, seven days a week for years of helping people is actually what created it. Because right. that foundation you can't take away. The way that you, I mean, people say all the time, it's like the way that you make people feel, they'll never forget, right? And so you've got thousands of people that you, at the time where they needed someone most in their life, you were the one that was there to help lead them out of the worst situation they've ever been in. They're forever grateful and connected to you. I feel like that's so true. We're actually getting a new furnace put in today. And the guy FaceTime with my husband a couple Saturdays ago to get our heat on. I, and I said to my husband, that's who we're buying our furnace for. 100%. At, the other companies could have come in. I'm not going to name the companies. They could have come in with lower quotes. I wouldn't have cared because that guy was there on a Saturday night when we needed him. So yeah. I agree with you. I think when things aren't great, that's when you remember who was there for you. Let me share just a, a very quick story. So I mentioned that I posted that story about the wild game with, with V and her two friends. So I posted that on social media. It's on my Facebook. There was a real estate agent in, in the market that commented on it and said, and talked about the days when it was just me. She said, I knew you before you were Chris Lindahl. And so she said, if it wasn't for you, my buyers would have not got that house. So they weren't my clients, right? I was working with the homeowners, but I was not willing to quit on the banks of getting that done. And that's, you know, nine years, 10 years later, she wrote that comment today. And I said, oh, that's such a thoughtful comment because most people won't, you know, give a compliment to another person in the same industry. And she said, I saw what you were doing back then and everyone could do what you're doing. No one chooses to. She's like, I know the work that goes into that. I saw it firsthand. So it's just like little deposits like that that you make through life. And I think- as I look at where we're at today and the growth plans that we have, I think a lot about, I think that the best way to, to describe this in the way that I think about it is if you had a bank account, you had, you know, you had a, some account and you have, if you're going to take withdrawals from a, a bank account, whether it's a checking account, savings account, where, whatever it is, you have to make deposits first. I've made so many deposits. And then as we scaled in January 15, all the other people inside our organization have made so many deposits that now the withdrawals we can take and you know, that's the business coming, moving forward. And too many people, what happens in business is they go and try to take money out of something that they've not made no deposits in. Mm. And that's what I've seen over and over again. And if you keep making deposits, you actually can't lose. And being a banker, I can appreciate that thought. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about when you're making a tough decision. Uh, do, you, do you have a mentor? What do you do? How do you make those decisions? So I've had a lot of, I've been fortunate to have a lot of mentors in my life. I think one that comes to mind that that's, you know, that most people in the, in the community know is Mike Payton from EOS. So he's a really great friend of mine. I was talking to him this morning. You know, that's he's, my daughter's name, Peyton. Oh, really? That's my that's main amazing. name. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, so Peyton is, he goes by Peyton, but you know, he was the CEO of EOS and now he's implementer here in the Twin Cities. He, he's been such a major part of my growth personally and professionally, right? He's just, we have a great time together. I love his wife, Kate. Like we, we get along super well. And I've been fortunate because he's, he's, you know, been alongside a lot of really successful companies around the world. Uh, and so getting to learn from him has been really beneficial for us. That's awesome. Our paths crossed too when he first started implementing in town. So we worked with him. Oh, amazing. He got us hooked on EOS as yeah, well. Yeah, he's great, great guy. So how many hours a week do you work? Yeah, it's a lot less than people think today. I'm The the beginning, I mean, the first, the, the, that, that 2009 to 2015, it was seven days a week. It was six in the morning and I'd get home like at 8 p.m. And then I would start the marketing. Cause I didn't have anyone else. Right. So it was a, it was and a the faxing. It, yeah. All of it. It was just, <laughs> it was, there was so much sacrifice that I had to make. And I think anyone that's ever done anything big in the world, there's a lot of things that went wrong. When you make sacrifices to do something that big, there's no way that everything can be perfect. I've just met a lot of people along the way that, that I know that have made ultimate sacrifices. It could be in their personal life or their professional life that, really have played an impact in, in what they've built. Some people say, hey, I don't want, I have no desire to do what you've done. I'd rather have this. And that's totally fine. I might not have no desire to do what they're doing either. 
But one thing that is different today is that because my role is really in the vision seat, there's a lot of things that I actually can't even do anymore in our company because the people that we have are at such a high level that if I stepped in that position, it'd be an absolute disaster. So my actual time in office is a lot less than it used to be. It's a lot less horsepower and a lot more brain power today. And before it was a lot more horsepower and a lot less brain power. Today, it's more strategy. Like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, the market's changing. These things are happening with homeowners. How do we deliver for them? So it's more of really thinking at scale, how to help a lot of people, help homeowners, help buyers, help agents. Like we're thinking really high level strategy. Also, because of how we've grown the recognition that we've received along the way, I now have the opportunity to be in circles around the country that I was never invited to or a part of. So the things that I'm learning, the information that I'm gathering is at such a different level than it was in the early days. So what I'm able to bring back to our customers and to our agents is at a very different level than I ever had before. And that's not necessarily all the information that I've gathered. It's just, I'm fortunate to be a, a part of some pretty amazing circles. That's awesome. So what do you do to unwind? Yeah. Do you no, unwind? Yeah, I do. I do. I do. Everyone's probably like, this guy's so intense. So unwind, I love to fish. Like a significant amount of fishing. That's a, for what me- kind, What kind of fishing? Uh, everything. I mean, Lusky, I, I, I love, I, I will do anything and I've done it all. Most of it, I should say. I got What's in, your best catch? Best catch. Ooh, that, that's tough. So if I had to say one, it'd probably be a blue marlin. Right. So I caught a blue marlin. The story's great. I had been trying to catch the elusive blue marlin for all these different trips that I went in, whether it was work or whatever. I'd, I'd always save like a day or a half a day to try to capture a blue marlin. It just was a bucket list thing for me. And I was in Maui and I had, this was several years ago, and I had one half day till I had to go there. I think my flight was at 4 p.m. And I found a charter that I negotiated with that said, let's go at six in the morning. I got to get of dropped off did. at noon. I'm going to bring the luggage and we're actually going to put that in the boat. And then when we're done, I'm going to take a taxi to the airport. So we go out for a half day and no one's catching anything. All of a sudden this blue Marlin bites and we land this blue Marlin and everything takes way longer. It's now one 30, the flight's leaving and it's a, I'm flying from Maui to Oahu. And then it's a straight flight to Minneapolis. So it's a quick flight. And then yeah. I'm an eight hour, eight and a half hour flight. So I'm like, well, I thought maybe I'd have time to go back and find somewhere to shower. So I've got this hose and I'm like showering off from catching this blue marlin right off the boat. I'm soaking wet. They've got fish towel rags and I'm drying off. And I jump in a taxi, go from Maui to Oahu and Oahu to Minneapolis. And I've got like four pictures of this marlin. And I'm like, I caught one. I'm so jacked up. And now I've got to get on all these flights for hours. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been up since four in the morning. I caught the marlin. It was so that worth was, it. It was a hundred percent worth it. Yeah. So that's the, I think I've got so many stories of, the stories that are usually actually the most memorable are the ones that got away. People naturally yeah. in life, you, you, we mostly think about the things that didn't happen more than we do the things that did happen. So, so tell us like too, that. I want to, you know, just because the timing of everything and I, I thought we were just getting I, started, Kathy. Oh, I have some fine. <laughs> I have some good uh, quick rapid fire questions for them. But, you know, with you, you touched on this a little earlier, 2020, like no one knew what the hell was going to happen. Right. Then 2021, I mean, good luck trying to find a home, mm -hmm. you know, pretty yeah. much. I mean, and now the feds raise the rates, we're shifting. So what are you seeing in your industry or, and what are you seeing? And then what are some things, how are you responding? Yeah. So change is good. I think that's a really important piece of this. You definitely don't want change that impacts human beings in a negative way, but change in general creates opportunity. And I think I love when something gets more challenging for our industry because that's where we actually thrive. When the business is great for everyone and you know rates are at you know, historic lows and everyone's doing whatever they want, they're just reaching out to their neighbor, their friend, their family member. It's just complete chaos. Everything's out of control. And now homeowners and home buyers, they're doing more research. They have to be more cautious with their money. They need more strategy than they needed before. And they're recognizing that the friend or the family member that they know might not be able to deliver on what they need today. And that's where we really win at a high level. And so I'm really excited about that. Where the market's exactly going, I don't know. I mean, I don't think anyone does with everything that happens with, you know, with the feds and, and whatnot. I will say that owning a home has got significantly more expensive, mm. right? With rates on the rise. But what's interesting is rents have 
got more expensive as well. So one of the things that's been a conversation a lot in some of the, the meetings that I've been in is housing inflation in general, right? And so shelter inflation is really what the term that they use where the cost of living has got so expensive that something has to give at some point. And I, a couple of the the indicators that that I've been watching that aren't so favorable is like savings, the amount of savings that people have today is, is at one of the lowest levels that we've seen in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And consumer debt is at one of the highest levels that we've seen in a very long time. I mean, like 45 years. And so those two things, you know, depending on, I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen. Those two things don't look so good, but in the real estate side of things, supply is still so tight. Even with the the, the rate change, we still have very low, historically low supply. And so it's really interesting because now, of course, we have less demand because things got more expensive from the change in rates, but we don't have, we don't have a surplus of inventory. That's why at the current state, everyone that says like, we're going back to 2008, 2009, we would need a lot more supply and we would need the type of loans that people are taking on to change significantly. It's just that it's very different, but it's definitely slower today than it's been. It's it's changed, but it also has created an opportunity because I think what you're going to see is a lot of the, there's still a lot of inventory that's owned by certain generations that are going to have to sell at some point. And there's so much of that right now that is still owned that has to transition at some point. And I think we're seeing some homeowners are realizing like this house is way too big for us. We're only living on the main level. We have a packed full of stuff. There's so much here. Like let's get ahead of this and sell before everyone sells at once. Right. And I think if some of those generations decide that they all want to sell at the same time, because a lot of them are, you know, are close in age, we might end up with too much supply. Right. And that might be one of the things that could potentially happen. But right now there's just not enough supply to create any sort of massive correction Obviously, it's all subject to what the rates do, which, you know, changes every single day. Right. One last business question. Yeah. So if you weren't selling real estate, what would you be doing today? Probably teaching and coaching. Right. I think I would lean more towards coaching. I love working with younger generations, like, you know, kids that are transitioning, that are trying to overcome things in their life and really helping them see bigger than what they believe they could do for their life. I feel like when you talk to someone, and I always knew this from my life, when I talked to someone that had sort of been in a similar situation that I had, I found it more relatable and believable that I could do it. And so when I talk to people like, hey, here are the things that happened in my life. I'm very open and talking about them. Here's what I had to overcome. I feel like people that have went through similar things or went through tragedy in their life, they can see a path out. They're like, if he did it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that that I can encourage people to do that, the that's really what brings me a lot of joy. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for asking. All right. Hot so, seat. Hot seat. And first answer. So no thinking or hmm, let me think. Don't give me any so, quick questions or curveballs here. So these are easy. Favorite restaurant in the Twin Cities? I love Smack Shack. What do you order? Uh, the Connecticut Roll. Hmm. Where would we find you most Saturday mornings? Probably at a soccer game with V. Okay, so in Hollywood adaptation of your life, what actor would you choose to play you? This is like the worst question to ask me because I watch zero movies. I need some help. What do you think? Really? <laughs> really. I mean, I the only thing that I watch is live sports and that's about okay, it. Okay, so I mean, I'm so Diggs, would you want Diggs to play you? In the- <laughs> what did you say, Olivia? Tom Cruise. Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. Oh, that's a good one. Tom Cruise. He's one of my favorite. All right. All right. So as long as I'm one of your favorite too, then I'd there say you Tom go. Cruise. Yeah. So what is something that you would still like to pursue in your career or your life? So I think one thing that I've really started on this path is really helping people scale business. And what I realized throughout this journey so far is that most businesses have the same problems. There are a lot of the same things that we face, especially like you got, if you if you categorize it, you, you've got B2C type businesses and you've got B2B type businesses. They have slightly different challenges on how they're getting to their customers. But in terms of people, leadership, process, and all the branding, marketing, scaling, all those things are very similar. And what I've found in listening to other business leaders and owners is that a lot of the same things that they're talking about are things that we've been through. Mm-hmm. And so coaching and consulting is something that we've, growing quite a bit. 
I have a quite a few consulting clients that I'm helping them scale their business around the country now, actually around the world. I've got some clients in Canada now. I like love doing that because I get to share things that we had to do along the way that I'm hoping that they can either avoid or they can move quickly past. And I didn't have those same people in my life as I was growing. I had to power through things and it took a lot longer. And I'm just trying to find an easier path for others that don't have to go through the same pain I did. That's awesome. Yeah, amazing. It's always others first, it sounds like, with you. And then the, you do that right and the rest comes back mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I, the next time I see the billboard, I will think of it in a different way now that we had this conversation. So thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, fun. Chris. Yes, yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today on Off the Record. Thanks for downloading Off the Record. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And to learn more, visit bizjournals.com slash off the record. This podcast is a presentation of the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal in partnership with Platinum Bank. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.